Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. All across the country, British citizens are conducting their standard evening routines. While not quite winter yet, the nights have been slowly drawing in. The long, loose days of summer are well and truly over, replaced with habits honed over the years. The school pickup, running some errands perhaps, and maybe cooking the family dinner ready to welcome the spouse home from work. But whatever the particulars unfolding in households across the length and breadth of the UK, there's certain touch points which unite the nation. The low crackle of the television set as it turns off. The sharp pulling of the curtains to shut out the night. And the firm tug of the dressing gown cord around the wearer's waist, which signifies... It's finally time to relax. It's a sign of comfort and warmth, usually accompanied with sliding your feet into slippers and putting the day's toil behind you. It's certainly not an action, or an item in fact, readily associated with violence. But for one man, with murder on his mind, it was the dressing gown cord which became his weapon of choice. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander, 
I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we are going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, the dressing gown cord. It's Wednesday, September the 26th, 1984, and 58-year-old Mary McLaughlin is spending the evening with friends in the Hindland, Mary's local pub overlooking Mansfield Park. She'd been a regular at the Hindland for years now, like most people who'd lived in this part of the world for as long as she had. We're in Scotland, more specifically, a place called Partick, a typical suburb just along the river from the brighter lights of Glasgow. In addition to the local watering hole, the main sources of entertainment for Partick residents were the F&F Bingo Hall and the record shop on De Courcy's Arcade, where the younger generations like to browse the latest releases, Mary's children among them. In short, Partick was a town like many others, and the Hindland was a pub like many others, and this too was an evening like many others, with Mary whiling away the hours playing bingo with friends. Mary was known for her outgoing, friendly and trusting nature, she lived in Partick for years, and with 11 children, most people knew who she was, by sight, if not by name. One of Mary's daughters, Catherine, is sat opposite her in the Hindland that night, having a drink and laughing along with the group. Familiar tunes and playful chatter filled the air. But Catherine didn't fancy staying out as late as her mother. At around 8 o'clock, she sets down her near-empty wine glass and pulled on her coat, ready to head for the bus stop. She made her way around the group, bidding everyone farewell. She waves goodbye to everyone from the door, and a chorus of voices cheerily shout their farewells, her mother the loudest among them. A couple of hours later, at around 10.45, Mary herself decides it is time to head home. It was last orders, and she was definitely feeling the effects of the alcohol she'd drunk that night. As she steps beyond the pub doors, the chill of the night air hits her in the face. It's refreshing, and she realises that she's hungry. Mary's flat was on Laurel Street in Thornwood, a mile or so away, but her stomach dictated that she should pay a visit to the chippy en route. When Mary strolled into Armando's chip shop on Dumbarton Road a little while later, she was in a jovial mood, chatting to other customers as she ordered potato fritters. The air was thick with the smells wafting towards her from the fryer, which only added to Mary's hunger. She bought some cigarettes too, 
and joked with the staff behind the counter as she handed over the money, trying to speak in an Italian accent. Again, she always played with the Italian staff. After the order was complete, everyone shouted, Ciao, ciao, to one another, laughing, as Mary left the shop and headed back into the night. Almost a week later, on the 2nd of October, Mary's son, Martin Cullen, made his way up the stairs to his mother's third floor flat. She'd lived alone in the Crathy Court block for some years now, and the large family tried to visit as often as they could, even though by now they were spread across Scotland, some in Glasgow still, others further afield in Lanarkshire or Ayrshire. But as Martin and his partner neared the flat, they curled their noses up at the horrible smell permeating the landing. It was a sickly, rotten smell. He made a mental note to ask his mother, who managed the property, so he could have a word with them. But as he stepped nearer his mother's door, it occurred to him that the smell might be coming from inside. Fear gripped him as he knocked, calling out his mother's name and announcing himself. There was no answer. He tried again. Still nothing. The odour was making him feel nauseous. A neighbour from the flat next door popped their head out of the door. She admitted to Martin that she hadn't seen his mother in a while and that the smell had been growing steadily worse for a few days. She noted the look of alarm on Martin's face and understood the urgency to figure out what was going on, to speak to Mary, to make sure she was okay. Thankfully, the neighbour had a key to Mary's flat, given to her some time ago for these exact circumstances, in case of emergency. Martin tried the key in the lock, but it wouldn't budge. And with fear and frustration mounting, the group in the hallway decided there was nothing else for it, they'd have to kick the door down. It didn't take more than a few heavy charges with Martin's shoulder before it gave way. At this point, there was no denying where the smell was coming from. In fact, there was a growing sense of acceptance about the possibility of the cause. Martin lost his nerve. If his mother had died, he did not want to see it. That was not the lasting image he wanted. His partner said that she would go and look, as Martin and the neighbour waited anxiously in the hallway. It wasn't long before a scream pierced the pin-drop silence and Martin's partner emerged from the flat, sobbing. Martin knew in an instant that whatever she had seen inside was no accidental tragedy. Something terrible had happened to his mother. Within the hour, officers from Strathclyde Police had arrived and cordoned off Mary's flat. In the lounge... Mary's body was being examined. She was lying on her back, wearing a green dress which had been pulled upwards so its skirts covered her body, though the dress itself was on back to front. Mary had been violently beaten, the signs of trauma and injury evident all over her body, 
in the form of cuts, bruises and marks on her skin. Apparently, Mary's own dressing gown cord had been used as a ligature, cutting brutally into the flesh of her neck, and the experienced officers on the scene also immediately recognised the signs of sexual assault, though they knew to wait for the post-mortem before jumping to conclusions. This was the mid-1980s. Forensic science was in its infancy, and there were few examples of complex cases being solved with science alone. Nevertheless, officers in Scotland recognised that everything in that property could offer a clue as to exactly what had happened and who was responsible. And so forensic officers carefully bagged up anything which they thought could be relevant. A half-smoked cigarette, Mary's coat, Mary's dress, and, of course, the dressing gown cord. But this is 1984. There wasn't a network of CCTV cameras to examine. No mobile phone masts to pinpoint exact locations. No digital forensics or social media for officers to trawl through. The primary tool of the trade was taking statements from anyone linked with or potentially relevant to the case. And over the next few weeks, hundreds of statements were taken. Everyone who'd sat with Mary, happily playing dominoes, not even the week before, was questioned extensively. Where had they all gone after last call at the pub? Had Mary arranged to meet anyone afterwards? they noticed anything out of the ordinary that evening. Mary's family and friends were interviewed too. Did Mary have any enemies? Anyone who could wish to cause her harm? The door of every inhabitant of Mary's block of flats was knocked upon. Neighbours were asked whether they'd heard anything that night, or whether they could remember Mary having any unusual visitors over recent weeks and months. Not surprisingly, everyone was happy to help, but nobody was quite sure that they could. They had nothing to offer. Homeowners and shop proprietors along Mary's presumed route home were spoken to as well. Which quickly led police to Armando's chip shop and those working on the night Mary was last seen. Of course, they remembered seeing Mary. She bought some fritters. She was in a good mood. And she was on her own. Officers were told that Mary had left the chip shop safe, happy and well, and by her own admission, bound for home. And it was here, at this juncture, that a crucial witness was identified. And the information he imparted became a linchpin of the case. David Seeger had been on shift for a few hours and it was a quiet night across Glasgow for taxi drivers. He found that idling around the local pubs would usually bring forth a customer before long. He'd done a few loops of Partick Town Centre while waiting for a job to come in on the radio. It was on one such loop that he spotted Mary McLaughlin, or Wee Mary, as she was locally known, walking along the road. David knew Mary, As the local cabbie, he knew most people by sight, if not by name. 
Then he noticed Mary's bare feet and chuckled to himself as he spotted the shoes clutched in Mary's hand. She'd clearly had a good night. However, David did not know the man who walked just behind her. Were they together? Did they know one another? From a distance, the taxi driver couldn't quite make it out. But he knew he'd never seen the man before, and noted that he was significantly younger than Mary, by a couple of decades at least. He noticed that the man was keeping pace with Mary, and sometimes Mary would stop and interact with him. Then, when Mary moved away, the man would catch up and fall into pace behind her again. Maybe they met at the pub, David thought, before his attention was diverted by a job coming in over the radio. This was a significant lead, and Strathclyde officers wanted to find the man David had seen urgently. They spoke to David at length. How tall was the man he'd seen? How old? What was he wearing? What did he look like? Anything significant about his appearance? And despite the darkness of the night in question, and the time elapsed since, David was able to give a fairly detailed description. But he couldn't give them a name, of course, and a description alone, well, it was only of use if someone recognised him. None of Mary's family or friends had any idea who the person described might be, and none of the officers did either. And with that, the trail went cold. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. As for all the items collected from Mary's flat, each one a potential smoking gun that could point police towards her killer, well, it would be another couple of years before forensic science was able to analyse DNA from a crime scene. In fact, the world's first DNA-based manhunt took place between 1986 and 1988 in Enderby, Leicestershire, during the investigation of a double rape murder. In that case, a woman by the name of Linda Mann had been murdered in 1983. Dawn Ashworth suffered a similar fate three years later. The prime suspect was a local boy named Richard Buckland, and Buckland confessed to Dawn's killing. But the first DNA testing of its kind revealed that Buckland's DNA did not match that of the killer. His confession was false, and he wasn't the person responsible. More alarmingly, that meant a dangerous killer was still at large. Richard Buckland was the first suspect cleared thanks to DNA profiling. And the actual killer, a man called Colin Pitchfork, was caught after his own DNA was found to be a match. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1988. These techniques were groundbreaking, but by today's standards, still in their infancy. It would take time for every police force to become familiar with the techniques and the processes for gathering evidence. They would need time to build a database. In the mid-80s, people in prison, or who'd been through the justice system, had not had their DNA collected. Only thing on file was their fingerprints. Detectives will tell you there's nothing more frustrating and disheartening than an unsolved murder case they're acutely aware that the lack of a perpetrator, the lack of someone to blame, means a lack of any kind of closure for the families. It's excruciating. Years passed. Thirty years, in fact. And Mary's case became one of the dozens of unsolved cold cases on Strathclyde Police's books. Unsolved murders are never officially closed in the UK but they do go cold. Generally, that happens when all viable leads in an investigation have been exhausted and the senior officer considers there is nothing further that can be progressed in the case at that time. The team in charge of investigating Mary's murder never got to that point, though. Despite the decades passing, there was always hope held out that they would find a killer. DNA and forensic testing was ever improving, and Strathclyde police had in their possession several invaluable exhibits from the crime scene. But by 2008, four separate reviews into the case had failed to identify a suspect. For Mary's family, hope had long gone by then. The occasional updates had become more and more infrequent, For Martin, Mary's son, the nightmares that awoke him each night had become the norm. He couldn't accept the state of affairs, but he'd become used to it. 
By the time a fifth review was launched in 2014, almost six years after the previous one, Mary's family knew to temper their expectations. Gartkosh train station is an 80-minute train ride from the centre of Glasgow. New-build flat and office blocks swiftly give way to green fields as the train passes through Springburn, Rob Royston and Steps stations. As it meanders its way to Gartkosh, the shiny and impressively imposing Scottish crime campus of the University of Glasgow comes into view ahead. The £82 million building brings together various departments of criminal investigation under one roof. And in 2014, a new £6 million DNA profiling facility was unveiled at the centre. The investment didn't just bring added capacity for DNA profiling. It also expanded the scope of DNA that could be profiled by forensic scientists. Previously, Strathclyde police were able to profile 11 areas of a person's DNA. The new facility allowed them to profile 24. For the gathered media, the announcement was exciting. The Director of Forensics for the Scottish Police Authority was a man called Tom Nelson. He explained exactly what all this meant. Scientists were now able to obtain DNA profiles from smaller or lower-quality samples, something that was impossible until that point. For cases that had gone cold, for exhibits that had been held on file for many years, this was a pivotal moment. Nelson explained that the technology meant they could reach back in time, with the potential to rekindle justice for those who had all but given up hope. Mary McLaughlin's unsolved murder was an ideal candidate for review. The testing available to detectives in the 80s was limited. Forensic scientists could undertake blood grouping and serum testing, but little more. It meant the exhibits held deep in Strathclyde Police's evidence storage facility were almost untouched, ready for DNA testing. Dr. Nyan Stevenson and Joanne Cochrane made their way down the corridor and into the sterile Scottish Police Authority laboratory. On the stainless steel table in front of them lay a large brown box. Within it were individually sealed evidence bags. One by one, the items were removed. The dress Mary was found in, the bra, the cigarette butt, the dressing gown cord. They carefully inspected the cord. Joanne noticed that the ligature had a couple of knots in it. One had been loosened. She checked her notes. A previous forensic review had prompted investigators to untie a knot to check for DNA. It was, the notes informed her, unsuccessful. But a second knot, tied in the act of strangulation, remained untouched and intact. Maybe the inside of that knot had remained free from contamination. They caught each other's eye. There was a chance, just a slight possibility, 
that within that second knot was the clue to catching Mary's killer. DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid. This is the genetic material which can be found in the nucleus of cells in the body. It is the genetic code that makes us who we are. Nuclear DNA defines many of our physical traits, but there is also junk DNA which can be used for investigative purposes. No matter the type of cell or body fluid, all the DNA in a person's body will be the same. That fact allows us to create a DNA profile from samples, usually body fluids, such as blood, semen and saliva. Dr. Nyan Stevenson and Joanne Cochran carefully and patiently opened up the knot in Mary McLaughlin's dressing gown cord. It was particularly tight. But they had time. Time they took to make sure it was done precisely. The advances and investments made in the forensic capability of Scotland's police meant that now in 2019, when the knot was loosened, they were able to analyse a minute sample found. A sample far too small to be analysed by any technology they had previously. For the first time in the case's long history, a profile was discovered. They logged on to the Scottish Police's DNA database. They inputted the new profile and waited. Graham McGill was plying his trade as a fabricator in Glasgow in 1984. But he was by no means a trusted worker. In fact, the work he was conducting was part of a Training for Freedom initiative. His residence was, at the time, HMP Edinburgh. He'd occupied a six-by-eight-foot prison cell for the best part of three years. Graham was serving a six-year sentence for a vicious assault with intent to ravish and rape, imposed in 1981. But his sentence had been halved for good behaviour, and a release date was set, just weeks away. On the 26th of September 1984, he'd left his cell for day release. The intention was for prisoners to gain invaluable life skills and to reintegrate into society. Graham was just 22 years old. He had other ideas for his day out. That night, he found himself in unfamiliar surroundings. The streets of Partick were not home. He wandered them aimlessly. With a new sense of freedom, he approached a stranger. She was alone and seemed a little drunk. The stranger was more than twice his age, but he engaged her in conversation. As she walked on, he followed her. Graham kept pace with her. At points, she stopped and they interacted. Then when she moved on, he would catch up and fall into pace behind her again. He followed the woman all the way back to her flat on Laurel Street. There, Mary McLaughlin lived alone. 2019. The DNA database open on Joanne Cochran's computer had just pinged with a notification. It had found a match for the profile she and her team had gathered from the knot of Mary McLaughlin's dressing gown cord. 
Graham McGill's DNA made its way onto that database in 1999. He'd been convicted for a brutal assault with intent to rape. Finally, the cold case team at Strathclyde Police had a perpetrator. Detective Chief Inspector Suzanne Chow was, in 2019, an experienced member of the major investigation team at Police Scotland. Her slight appearance and soft manner masked a forensic eye for detail, and her colleagues regarded her highly. As she and her team approached Graham McGill's front door in December, there was a bitter chill in the air. The Christmas holiday seemed a distant dream for the officers in position. They knocked at the door, unsure of what to expect. McGill, now in his late 50s, opened the door with caution. He struck a confused figure at the commotion on his front door. To Detective Chief Inspector Chow, he looked shell-shocked, as though he genuinely wasn't expecting his past to come back and haunt him 35 years later. As handcuffs were placed on his wrists, she explained to him that he was indeed being arrested for the murder of Mary McLaughlin in 1984. In late 2019, Graham McGill was still working as a fabricator in Glasgow, but he was being managed as a sex offender. He had, in 2007, been released on parole after his 1999 conviction for an attempted rape. Eighteen months later, he stood in the dock of Glasgow's High Court awaiting the jury's verdict for a murder he claimed to know nothing about. The problem for McGill was that his DNA was a match for that found in the cord of Mary McLaughlin's dressing gown cord. Profiles were also found on a cigarette butt and on Mary's dress. The odds of those coming from someone other than Graham McGill were a billion to one. There was every chance the jury would have found this evidence compelling alone, but there was another key piece of testimony that formed the prosecution's case. The reinvestigation in 2019 had been thorough. It reached into every corner of Graham McGill's life. Detective Superintendent Suzanne Chow knocked on the door of another woman called Suzanne, Suzanne Russell. The visit came as somewhat of a surprise for the latter, but the detective was invited in and the kettle was boiled. Suzanne Russell was the ex-wife of Graham McGill. Chow explained the investigation, at least the details she was at liberty to share. The information wasn't earth-shattering for Russell. She knew Graham had been previously convicted for attempted rape, and he had a violent history. But it prompted a memory. A memory of a conversation that stuck. In 1988, four years after Mary McLaughlin was murdered, Graham McGill had told his then-wife Suzanne that he had once killed a woman he met in a pub after going back to her flat. She kept quiet all these years for fear a similar fate might befall her. As she sat with the detective, 
she recalled the gruesome conversation. He said he strangled her, and said he just wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. He said he used her tights, and said he was shocked how long it took to actually murder her. The tights were likely, in reality, the dressing gown cord. It took just over two hours for the jury to reach a verdict. Guilty. Martin Cullen will always have nightmares about the day he and his ex-partner discovered his mother's body in her Glasgow flat. For decades, the repeating nightmares had been compounded by the realistic fear that the perpetrator would evade justice, that his mother, Mary, would never get justice. When Graham McGill was led back to his holding cell in Glasgow's High Court, starting a life sentence, relief set in. It was not a feeling of joy that filled Martin, however, just a sense of the order and answers he and his family should have received over 35 years prior. One of his siblings had passed away before a verdict was finally delivered. All had been tortured by the uncertainty. But, owing to the ever-evolving science of DNA, Mary's family could finally rest, knowing that her murderer would likely spend the rest of his life in prison. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, And by me, Tracy Alexander. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help to spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.